if you are ready to take the hard road. The road less travelled. The path in life where the journey is more important than the destination. Then you are in the right place. Prepare to live with vigour. This is the Adventurous Gentleman Podcast. Don't forget, if you are looking for optics, check out mavenbuilt.com. Pick up some pretty awesome binoculars or spotting scope and use the coupon code NBHGIFT at checkout and you will get some free Maven swag with your order. Also, if you use the coupon code TAG10 whenever you purchase some Mountain Ops supplements, you'll get 10% off your order. And not only that, we now have a new uh, code with Outdoor Vitals. You may have heard Tayson on one of our previous episodes. They make some really great packs and tarps and uh, hammocks and sleeping bags. I believe it's one of the number one sleeping bags sold on Amazon. So check those out, Outdoor Vitals. And when you use the code GENTLEMAN at checkout, you will receive a free camping pillow when you spend $50 or more. Today's guest is Patrick Rollins. He is the lead instructor at Randall's Adventure and Training School of Survival. He has been a sheriff's deputy with Whitefield County Sheriff's Office in Georgia since 1993. He's involved in law enforcement. He's involved in instructing with firearms, rope rescue, swift water rescue technician, and he is a wilderness first responder. He also works and is designed some of the best knives in, I know, a lot of people's opinions for Essie, which I didn't know about, to be honest, Patrick, until recently when I went to a shotgun training course and the instructor also teaches some small knife courses and some other things. And I said, you know, I'd like to have a small kind of concealed carry knife that I can use every day. And he recommended the Azula too. Oh, cool. And then I had a friend on who's big into the YouTube bushcraft scene. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'm looking for a knife that's great for hunting and bushcraft. And he recommended the SE3. And yeah, and that all happened within about a week or two weeks of each other. And I thought, you know what, I really got to check this company out and check these knives out. And that's how I stumbled upon you. And I've been watching you talk about knives on YouTube ever since. I'm glad to be on here, Will. This is, a, a, like I told you, a first for me, and, and I'm excited. Me too. So how did you get involved in the outdoors? Because anybody who goes over to Randall's Adventure Training and they check out the website, you have a pretty long resume. Well, I grew up in the 80s, and like most children of the 80s, I grew up watching Red Dawn, First Blood, you know, all those good movies. Um <laughs> Developed a, d- developed an interest in survival and the outdoors and all that early on. You know, love building forts, trying to start fires with magnifying glass, that kind of thing. And then got into the Boy Scouts at a young age. Was in that for a few years. Actually, in middle school, I had a coach named Mike Wade. Mike, if you're listening, you're a big cause of all this. We had a health class. He showed us Jeremiah Johnson. I don't know what it had to do with. A health class, exactly. Uh, but just watching that and, and seeing, you know, how things were, you know, back in the day, I just really developed an interest into the like primitive skills and all that and so on. You know, that was probably one of those things where he was like, you know what, I need to man it up in this health class a little bit, bring, bring in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I think he just didn't want to teach, you know, for a couple of days. So he showed us a movie, but I told him, 
he's actually a member of the hunting club that I'm on. And I told him that he's a big reason of, of where I'm at today. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so awesome. You know, teachers can be so impactful and you never know. Oh yeah. I can't imagine how many people have been inspired by Jeremiah Johnson and Rambo. There's probably, <laughs> there's probably a lot more out there than I even I could think of. Quite a few. So from there, where do you go? Now you're inspired. Um, You've watched Jeremiah Johnson. Robert Redford is the ultimate outdoorsman. How do, how do you get from watching that movie to where you are today? Did a lot of stuff on my own, just out basically the way kids used to do, playing outside all the time. I uh, love playing in the woods, fishing, hunting, camping, every chance I got. Got into law enforcement out of straight out of high school. Started working in the jail at Whitfield County. That took up a lot of time, and I didn't get to get out as much as I would have liked. In 2009, I was looking online, just checking out different stuff, and I saw Randall's Adventure Training was doing a class in Fort Payne, Alabama. It was a five-day wilderness operations class which sounds like a law enforcement class. So I got to looking at it, and they were going to be teaching basic human tracking, basic survival, land navigation, and uh, a little bit of ropes, you know, rappelling. And so I put in a request to attend the class and was approved and got to go to the five-day class and absolutely fell in love. That was my first experience as an adult seeing that, hey, there's, there's stuff out there that teaches all this fun stuff that I love, you know, and, and in the outdoors. Had a blast at the class, met Jeff Randall, the, one of the owners of the company. Got asked to come back and start helping out with classes. So I would take time off from the sheriff's office, take a week off, you know, vacation time, and come help teach when we did the classes in Fort Payne. And did that for a couple of years. And then got asked to come help teach down in the Amazon in Peru on one of the jungle survival classes. Went and did that. Towards the end of 2012, Another instructor, Ruben Boyer and myself, were going to be taking a group of students to the Amazon without Jeff or Mike, the other owner. And so basically that class was the turning point where they were pretty much handing over the reins of the jungle survival class to me. I was at Jeff's house getting the spot and the satellite phone, and he called me out on the porch and he said, let me ask you a question. He said, if you don't want to tell me, that's fine. He said, but how much do you make a year? And I told him. And at the time, I was the administrative lieutenant over patrol division at the sheriff's office. He said, if I was to pay you what you're making now, would you be interested in coming on full time? Teaching classes, keeping up with rosters, answering emails, doing the trade shows, you know, shot show and blade show, et cetera. And I, I said, man, I'd jerk your arm off <laughs> if you offered that to me. <laughs> and he said, well, this was probably October of 2012. and so." You know, I talked to talked to my family and talked to, you know, the sheriff and the major at the sheriff's office and told them the opportunity I was getting. And everybody said, go for it. You know, even the um, the major of the sheriff's office, he said, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity, he said, you'll always have a job here if it doesn't work out. That kind of so, support's so valuable. Oh, yeah. Well, I, the way I explained it to him, I said, you know, major, what if you love bass fishing? And Anytime you were off work, that's all you wanted to do is go out and, and go bass fishing. And then all of a sudden, somebody offered you to pay you full-time what you're making now to do nothing but go bass fishing. And uh, he understood. He said, I understand completely. So I started January of 2013 full-time with him. And have you ever looked back? 
people have asked me, you know, I, I still see a lot of the guys at the sheriff's office and they've asked me, do you ever miss it? No, not for one second. I don't miss it. <laughs> I wasn't disgruntled by any means when I left, but I knew I was in an office doing administrative work, schedules, disciplinary actions, that kind of thing, dealing with citizen complaints. And I could see the writing on the wall that that's all I would ever be doing from there on out. So, no, I don't miss it. Since I came on full-time, it's never seemed like work. Even on the hardest, toughest class, you know, three days with hardly any sleep, you know, out in the elements, pouring rain, cold, whatever. It's never seemed like work. Just been an adventure. How have you changed personally since starting this job full-time? It frees up a lot of time to do the stuff that I love and can get to consider it work. Where before, you know, I'd have to do everything on my own time in the outdoors. Now, if I want to go out and go hiking, build some traps, you know, work on some skills, friction fire, whatever, I can do that. And it's it's part of my job. You know, I don't I don't feel guilty, you know, that I'm taking time away from anything else um, because it's work. You know, it, it doesn't seem like work, but it, it's improving myself, improving skills, et cetera. That's probably the, the biggest change. Speaking of skills. What do you find are the three most important skills for somebody when it comes to survival in bushcraft? There's a lot of tool use in bushcraft, mainly, primarily a knife. The more stuff you can do with a knife, the better off you are, because you may not have an axe with you, you may not have a saw, etc. In the classes that I teach, you know, a lot of people think, you know, yeah, I know how to use a knife, but using it safely and using it to its full potential, whether it's, you know, different notches, building shelters, building traps, you know, using it in conjunction with, you know, getting wood prepared for a fire, you know, the fine kindling, the shavings and all that stuff. So knife use, real big skill. And in our classes, we don't we don't push our knives. You know, I appreciate the, the, the great comments about them that you had earlier, but we don't, you know, we don't sell at our classes. We don't sell our knives. It doesn't matter what somebody shows up with. And I tell them that, you know, if all you have is an old flea market butcher knife, you know, old hickory or something, use it and use it to, you know, learn how to use it, what it will do well and what it won't do well. And uh, just basically be become real familiar with it. So knife use, knife skills, very big. Fire. Fire is very important, being able to get it going when it's bright and sunny and also when it's pouring rain, cold, your hands are shaking and you can't touch your fingertips together. Being able to still get fire, that's very, very important. The last one, kind of a vague one, and it's actually one of the most important ones I teach, be able to adapt and think outside the box. Think of different ways you could use different items to your advantage, that kind of thing. I know I'm not using my knife to its fullest potential when I go outdoors because today I was watching a video of you and you made a stirring, a pot stir, you know, kind of like a spatula yeah. that also had a, yeah. a little notch for opening the lid and you made the <laughs> pot holder so the pot could be held over the open fire with a stick. And I thought to myself, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't do all of that. <laughs> or maybe I could, but I just don't know how yet. Yeah, you can. It just just takes practice and learning, you know, learning the different skills and and what all you can get away with it. That's why I love going down to um, to Peru when we do those jungle classes. You know, the big thing down there is uh, machetes. You can find them, you know, just about anywhere, you know, for sale and in the little hardware stores. But you know, when you get out with the locals out in the jungle, watching them use a machete to its full potential. And when we take a group of students down there, you know, as you know, Americans. 
they're chopping everything in sight, you know, just chopping, you know, we're moving through the jungle trying to get from point A to point B and they're chopping stuff that, you know, doesn't even need to be chopped. But you watch the locals move through the jungle with a machete and they're using it to, to part vines. Most of the time it's used more like a beater stick moving through the jungle because all that chopping, that's just, you know, burning energy, just wasting energy. And it's not like you're clearing a path because it'll be grown up in a day or two <laughs> down yeah. there. I've watched guys, you know, some of the locals down there take a machete and completely clean and process a chicken, you know, while they're holding it in their hand or cleaning piranhas, you know, gutting and cleaning a piranha, holding it in your hand using a machete. And just watch the, you know, watching the finesse and how they use the tool really hammers at home that, that, you know, there's a lot you can do, you know, with a sharp blade. Wow. I mean, and those are obviously a chicken and piranha, not very big animals for such a big blade. Yeah, I've watched him. Uh, the chicken really blew me away because he completely processed it out while he was holding it in his hand and then quartered it up, holding it in his hand, just by the way he turned his hand that was holding the chicken. And he's choked up on the machete. You know, he's not swinging it by the handle. You know, he's choked up on the blade, you know, holding it by the backside of the blade. And, you know, those guys, you know, they just do it every day. And, you know, when we go down there, coming from the United States or other, you know, first world countries, we've got to have the quick drying the best quick drying ex officio clothes you know the the jungle boots with the drain ports and you know all this this high quality stuff those guys are just walking around in shorts flip-flops and like an old michael jordan jersey for them it's it's just living you know we're going down there we're learning good skills teaching good skills but those guys that live it every day that's that's who you need to to look to uh, to pick up good information they found all the shortcuts oh yeah how many knives have you designed now? The PR4 is the only one. A couple of years ago, Jeff came to me. I'd already been working for him for a year or two. Jeff said, I want you to design a knife that you would want to use in the woods. And I told him, I said, Jeff, I'm not a knife designer. You know, I'm just a user. And he said, no, I'm serious. Well, something you would want to use. I came home, sketched it out, what I would like to use. You know, it came out this past summer. I'm just really excited about it. No plans to design anymore because, like I told them, you know, I'm not a designer. But the uh, the idea behind it, I've always been a huge fan of Horace Kephart that wrote Camping and Woodcraft, you know, back in the early 1900s. A big design, a real popular design even today is the Kephart design. It's basically a spear point blade, you know, about a four inch blade, not real thick, so one eighth of an inch thick. And so that's what I, I looked at, different pictures of his design. Other makers have produced it sketched it out the way I wanted it to look, showed it to Jeff and Mike, and they decided to go forward with it. That's pretty cool. And what was it like seeing the first prototypes of it? I got with James Gibson, who's a another instructor of ours that teaches a lot of the bushcraft, helps me teach the bushcraft, or I help him, rather. A big primitive skills instructor. He's also a blacksmith, makes his own knives, custom knife maker, makes some real nice knives. Jeff told me if I wanted to, to get with James and see if James would make a prototype for me. And I told James, I said, we'll pay you. You know, we'll pay you for the, for making it. Less than two weeks later, James was coming out to uh, the farm where we do the classes at Jeff's. He had it with him. He had knocked it out and just seeing it, you know, it just, I just really liked it. His craftsmanship was, you know, second to none. I actually used it in classes and you know, on my own. For about two years before it was finally put into production, I've never had any problems with it. Done everything from you know teaching classes, building trap shelters, that kind of thing, to 
you know, carving and field dressing deer, that, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And just, it's just, it's simple, you know, just a simple design. A lot of the stuff you're seeing in the knife industry nowadays is more gimmicky where they're making thicker blades. Now they're adding a saw back to it. And now you're supposed to be able to chop with it. You can saw with it. You know, they're trying to add too much to the knife and it'll never chop as good as an ax. It'll never saw as good as a saw. And now that you've done all this to it, it'll never do knife task as well as it would have. So I just, you know, I just want a knife to be a knife and do knife, knife stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. They end up almost like trying to make a fixed blade into a Swiss army knife. Oh yeah. And you see this on the, uh, the forums a lot of times, uh, if you could only carry one tool or if you could only carry one knife, luckily in the country we live in, you can carry whatever you want to. <laughs> you can carry as many knives as you want to. You can carry a machete, a, a hatchet, you know, an axe, you know, whatever to saw. When the classes that I teach, the survival classes, now we'll show what all you can do with just a knife, if that's all you have. But we always stress, you know, use the right tool for the job. If you have an axe, use it to do the heavy work, you know, that kind of thing. And just, you know, use the knife just to do the simple knife task. I think that's a theme that keeps reoccurring with people I have on the show, especially instructors, is people will want to buy their way out of having to learn how to use something. Oh, yeah. I see it in classes occasionally. You know, somebody will show up with just a really nice high-end knife, you know, custom knife or whatever, but have never really used it. And luckily, on the other hand, I've seen people show up with just a cheaper, plain-jane, common knife, but, but know what they're doing with it, you know, really know what all it will do. So we see, you know, both extremes. Before the knife you designed, did you have a go-to knife? For the longest time, I used just the regular SE3. I love a thin blade. It doesn't have to be a very long blade. And so just that one-eighth of an inch thick blade is thick enough for me. And then when we came out with the 3HM, which is the same blade style, but just rounder, more contoured handle on it, that became a favorite. Now, why a thin blade versus a thick blade as your preference? When you get into a lot of the notches and the stuff that I teach, you know, with the different trap triggers and stuff like that, sometimes a thick blade, it just makes it a little more difficult. I don't know if you've seen our SE5. That was designed to cut and pry and chop your way out of a crashed helicopter. So it's a quarter inch thick. That's way too thick, way too heavy. People love it. <laughs> People pick it up at the, you know, at Shot Show and Blade Show, and they're like, "Now that's a knife," you know. <laughs> but uh, excuse, excuse me for doing the stuff that I teach and do, like cleaning, you know, fish and small game and stuff like that. Just a thin blade, it just seems, you know, a, a lot more capable of handling it better. Going into the jungles, the first time you did your first trip down there, where you were the lead instructor and nobody. Randall and them weren't coming with you. Were you pretty nervous or did you feel very confident in going down? First, we'll back up to the my first trip down there, if you don't care. Oh, please um, do. I was brought down there. You know, my big thing has always been knife skills and fire. That's that's where my passion lies. And so I was coming down that first trip to teach fire making in a rainforest. And so that was that that was uh really hanging over me. You know, here I am. I'm, I'm getting to come down, you know, I'm with Randall's Adventure Training as an instructor, first trip in the jungle, and I'm going to have to teach how to build a fire in a rainforest, you know, where even in the dry season, it, you're probably going to get a little bit of rain every day. After that first trip, 
you know, the first few days down there, you know, I can't lie to you. There was a moment of maybe I'm in too deep, <laughs> you know, it's a fun place to go visit, but I would not want to live there. Uh, you get off the plane, we got off the plane in the Kitos and the, the heat and the humidity, but you know, I'm from Georgia. So, you know, heat and humidity is not that big of a deal, but the insects, once you get into the jungle, just the sheer number of insects, everything biting and stinging and, you know, the constant sweating, having to dry your feet out every night just to make sure, you know, that you don't start getting trench foot, you know, that kind of thing. But by the time, you know, I had been two or three times, you know, before going down and basically getting it handed off to me. And by then, you know, I was just fully confident in, you know, my skills, my, my good friend, Ruben, the co-instructor that was going with me, he goes, he's been to numerous jungles all over the world. So I knew that between he and I working together as a team, plus we always use the same guide, Percy Yakamina down there, you know, and Percy, you know, grew up in the jungle and he's always with us, you know, when we do these classes, the stuff we teach, the majority of it carries over anywhere. Just the basics of knife use, fire making, uh, land navigation, you know, that kind of thing. When it comes to the plants and animals of the jungle, I let Percy teach that because, you know, that's, that's his backyard. I wouldn't feel comfortable going down there and trying to speak on, you know, plants and, and this and that with him there, you know, just being able to do such a better job. When you're down there, do you usually eat just whatever you guys find, or are you bringing food, or how do you handle that? As instructors, we'll sneak some uh, cliff bars, you know, or something just to to keep us going, because it's hard to teach, you know, a six-day class uh, getting just as run down as the students are. So you have to maintain, you know, a clear head, being able to teach every day. Uh, We'll have a little something down there with us just to keep us going. But for me personally, the heat and the humidity, and all that, I, even bringing stuff down there, you know, to, to snack on if need be, I just don't get that hungry down there. And uh, Ruben, you know, he's the same way. We just you just don't eat much. You know, it, it's hard to force yourself, you know, to eat, uh, but you need to be getting some sort of, you know, calories in just to keep your energy level up. Now, for the students, we'll try to build the shelters uh, where we're close to a water source. Because nine times out of 10, that's your best bet, you know, getting food. You know, if we can get some limb lines, fishing lines, you know, tied off to a you know, tree limb or something, get those in the water or hand lines, try to catch some fish, something like that. It just depends. Some classes were, will be successful, you know, just gathering, catching stuff as we go. But still, there, you know, there might be two or three days with, without any food coming in. And if it gets to that point, we always like to teach a animal processing class. And so if we haven't had any luck catching anything, Percy will go with one of his guys and they'll go out scouting around the jungle, come back with a sloth or come back with, um, you know, this last trip this past summer, he came back with a, about a nine foot anaconda that we taught how to process and we cooked it up and, you know, ate like Kings for a day or so. And then it was back to lean times. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) between the anaconda and the sloth, which one tastes better? That's kind of hard to say. <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to describe sloth. It it tastes like sloth. Um, <laughs> you know, every, every even the fire that we're cooking on, it's just a wet, smoky, smoldering fire. Uh, a lot of times, if it's raining, we'll have to build some type of lean-to or covering of, over the fire just to keep you know the rain from putting it out or 
or dampening it down so the food doesn't cook as well. The anaconda, the way we cooked it, if we'd have had a pot with us, Percy said that, you know, the best way to do it would be to, to make like stew and stew it for, you know, a few hours. But the way we did it, we just built what's called a swamp grill, which is basically four Y sticks stuck in the ground with just some cross green sticks, making like a grill out of wood. It's raised up above the flames, so you can lay meat on it, and it'll still be getting the heat, but, you know, the green sticks won't, won't catch fire. Real rubbery, real chewy, real rubbery. It was good. You know, a lot of it was calories coming in, <laughs> so everybody enjoyed it. Could have used a little Frank's Red Hot. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So are those the two oddest things you eat while on the trip, or is there something even weirder? We've had, I think it's called Mahas, which is like a, a jungle rat. We've had that before, and it was actually pretty good. Tasted similar to like pulled pork. One trip, my first trip down there, we wound up eating uh, an armadillo. And then it was only afterwards when we got back that I found out that the armadillos are a big carrier of leprosy. <laughs> and so uh, oh, good. I decided right then... Decided right then not to chance that again. So, uh, but it, you know, when it's when you when you're down there and there's not other food coming in, you just think of it. It's just meat. It's just calories coming in, and taste kind of put that behind you, and just know that you know you need this coming in just for the energy that you'll get from it. Is the jungle the toughest place you've had to go down and do the survival training, or are there other ecosystems you find that you've been to um, that may be more challenging or as challenging? The jungle just by itself is is tough. Just the heat, humidity, and the bugs, uh, and the constant, you know, almost constant rain. You know, I'm I've grown up in the southeastern woodlands. That's home to me, so feel most comfortable there. I've done a little bit out west in the deserts, and some in Utah and Arizona and California. And for me, just not growing up in that environment or being in it a whole lot. I'd have to say the desert. I'm used to down, you know, here in Georgia, you're in the mountains or whatever, you'll find a stream or a creek, you'll find water. But out there in the desert where water is a whole lot more scarce, to me, I would say that's a tough one. I've never done anything in the extreme north, you know, in extreme cold weather. So I look forward to, to one day, you know, getting up there and, and learning some, you know, developing that, that those skill sets also. Other than a knife, do you have a favorite piece of equipment you take with you? I've got a medium camp axe that's made by H&B Forge. Just a short 19-inch handle with a hammer pole on the back so you can drive stakes and stuff. Since I've gotten it, it's, it's been with me on just about every trip, you know, just for cutting poles for building a shelter or processing wood for a fire, that kind of thing. It's just lightweight, and I have almost always have that with me. Do you see any common mistakes people usually make when they're doing survival or bushcraft on their own? When it comes to students coming and taking classes, one of the things I've noticed that I see it, you see it more in males. I don't know if it's uh, universal or just mainly here in the Southeast. People overestimate their skill level. If they've grown up camping, hunting, or whatever, they automatically think, oh, I know how to build a fire. You know, or I know how to do this. I know how to do that. When they're taking the class, it's almost like an eye opener to see what all can, what all is involved in doing it properly, and being able to do it, like starting a fire, for instance. You know, anybody can go out and start a fire with the matches, lighter, whatever. But try doing it when after a rainstorm, when everything's soaked. And so some of the times, you know, in the classes, I'll tell them once you get it down pat, 
either making a fire, whether regardless of the ignition ignition source, you know, whether it's matches, a ferrocerium rod, you know, bow drill, whatever, make it harder on yourself. Go out and gather all your materials and then pour a bucket of water on them. Or, you know, if you're doing it real, it's real easy for you to do it right-handed, try it left-handed or try it with one, just using one hand. You know, constantly make it harder and harder on yourself. So if you're in a situation, you know, to where whatever occurred, you know, fell off part of a cliff, flipped your canoe, broke your arm, whatever. And then, then you know, you would have practiced that. I like stressing that if there's a chance your life might depend on a certain skill, you want to have practiced it a whole lot before that moment comes. So if you do a whole lot in the outdoors and there's a chance that one day, you know, your life might depend on your ability to get a fire going just to stay warm through the night, practice it every which way you possibly can and and make it harder and harder and harder on yourself. You know, don't think just because you can do it the normal way that, you know, you're golden, you know, try to make it harder on yourself in case you were to run into a situation where, you know, God forbid you, you could only use one arm and now you've got to get a fire going, that kind of thing. Is there any mishaps that stick out in your mind that you've seen like, oh man, this was the worst disaster while out there in the field? We've been really fortunate since I, you know, came on full time for the accidents and stuff go. Strongly stress, you know, before we get into using any sharp tools, teach a real good safety class, what to do, what not to do, that kind of thing. Uh, we did have a, a gentleman, it was the last day of a three-day survival class, and we had covered, you know, machete safety and all that. He was using a machete. And, you know, I always stress, you know, if you're right-handed and you're cutting like a sapling down, be mindful of where your left leg is. Don't have your left leg up too far. You know, get it behind, you know, kind of back behind you because you always have to be aware of what if my tool cuts all the way through the material, what's behind it? You know, what's it going to run into? Nothing against him. He just had a, a slip and it cut through what he was trying to cut down and, and, and caught him in the shin. A lot of times with machetes, that's where you'll see the injury uh, in the opposite leg or opposite foot. Just where it was too far forward and the machete cut through the material faster than they thought it would and it's follow through. You've know, you got to be mindful of your follow through. We got a H bandage on it. He finished out the class and, and drove back home. We told him, you know, once you get home, you'll not want to have a doctor take a look at it, see if he wants to put any stitches in it. He, he was fine. But yeah, we've been real fortunate as far as, you know, accidents and injuries go. What's your gear list look like when you're out there, say, camping or just working on your bushcraft skills for a weekend? It changes depending on, you know, if there's something that Jeff or Mike, the owners, are wanting me to try out, a new product we've got coming out, anything like that. A, a basic list, one-eighth of an inch thick knife, whether it's, you know, mine, the PR4, or one of our threes, 3HM, you know, love knives. So, you know, I've got several to choose from. It just depends on, you know, what I'm wanting to use that day. Here lately, for the longest time, I uh, would just rig up a tarp, build a lean-to, you know, out of a tarp. And if I'm in an area where you can build fire, like having a, a long fire at night, if it's getting, you know, temperatures dropping down at night. Sleeping bag, I've got a, um, a Pro Force. I think it's a Softy Hawk that Bruce, our sales rep, he also uh, was a sales rep for Pro Force. It was a demo model or something that he, he, he gave to me, you know, for free. I'm a taller, bigger guy, and so most sleeping bags I don't like feeling confined, and so you know it's big. It was big enough to move around in, so I use it a lot. Sleeping pad, I've got a Thermarest. I think it's the Pro Light, the orange one. 
packs up small. A lot of times we'll add to insulation by piling up leaves or pine needles or, or whatever just to help further insulate you from the ground if it's getting cold at night. Tent, if I'm not using the tarp, I've used a Big Agnes. I think it's the Copper Spur 2. I've used it quite a bit, lightweight, but that take up a whole lot of room in a pack. I recently got a uh, Kafaru Salty. I've been seeing pictures and seeing videos of it. It's kind of a you know a TP type design. It it has a uh, the medium camp stove, so it's got a a small wood stove that packs up packs up small, flat. I wouldn't want to carry all that for like a long trip, you know, long hike or something like that. But for canoe camping, something like that, you're not really as concerned about taking up too much room or, or total weight, that works real great. Hiking boots, for the past couple of years, I've been wearing the, the Solomon, I think it's the GTX 4s. Super comfortable right out of the box. Put a lot of miles on them. They hold up real well. H&B medium camp packs, I usually have it with me. So Swedish light my fire, fire steel, ferro rod. Used just about every make of ferro rod out there teaching classes doing demos and stuff like that and that's the one I, I like the best and get the most out of with canoe camping what kind of canoe are you uh rocking i've got an old town 147 that i've had for several years now you know not the lightest not the most expensive but man it's it's a tank it's held up held up well and you can haul you know if it's just me in the canoe i can haul my ton of stuff in it just, just love, you know, love canoeing. Love it a lot more than any type of swift water. Just relaxing, I, just to be out on still water or a slow-moving river, that kind of thing. I would agree with you. I recently did a canoe race this year with a friend of mine. It was always a big dream of his to do this. It's called the 90 Miler. It takes place in the Adirondack Park, and it retraces what they call the original Adirondack Highway, where the hunters and trappers ah. would take sounds awesome <laughs> it is awesome if you ever get a chance i would highly recommend coming up here for it it's a race that you know they have all different categories and skill levels and there's big war canoes down to kayaks <laughs> and all kinds of things and it's it's one of the most fun things i've ever done in my life and when we started this the only canoeing i had done before that was like one time at summer camp <laughs> so <laughs> We didn't know which end it's steered a, the canoe. It's one of those deals that it's a race, but who cares if you don't win? <laughs> oh, yeah. and guess what? There's a cutoff. So people are uh, getting cut off. Luckily, we were physically fit enough and could make up enough time on all the portages that at the end of the first day, we just made the cutoff. Oh, man. <laughs> that night, we looked up how to steer a canoe. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah and by the middle of the day and the last day we were uh middle finishing like middle of the pack of our heat so we had made wow, quite cool. a yeah we had made quite a bit of progress in three days but it's a lot of fun because you camp out at state parks at night and just a lot of really good people really fun time. oh yeah the good people that's one of the things i've noticed you know, since doing this job is you meet a lot of good, good people. And we've had students that come take a class. We first meet them and then learn more about them. And then we've had students kind of like the same deal that when I started with them, got asked to come back and help out. You know, we've had students come that we've had come help teach certain stuff. Once we learned, you know, what, where their, their skills, you know, lie. And we've made just, you know, great friends that'll be friends, you know, for the rest of our lives just from doing these classes 
Yeah, you know you'd have a place to stay anywhere in the country just about. Yeah. Th- that's how I feel about the hunting community and the outdoor community at in general. And that's one of the reasons I made the move I did to go from just a hunting podcast to an outdoors podcast is I wanted something to bridge the gap between that hunting community and the outdoors community because for two groups of people to do so many similar things to be kind of at odds or not as connected yeah. it strikes me as incredibly odd. Oh yeah, we're all we're all in this lot together. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the same beliefs, you know, when it comes to public land or game management and all this stuff and yet there just wasn't that connection. So hopefully that'll grow as things go because one thing I realized when doing this canoe race is you're going to find hunters everywhere. A guy was driving down the road at one of the uh, state parks we were camping out at, and he was looking for a Will and an Ian, which is mine and my buddy's name, and who had getting in late and they needed a ride. Well, it turns out there's two other guys who are from New Jersey doing the race, and their names were Will and Ian, <laughs> and they, they were the ones who needed a ride. But I looked, and he had a Kuyu or a Sitka, I can't remember, one of those jackets on, and he's, I had a first light shama hoodie on and he was like hey nice hoodie and i'm like hey nice jacket and (laughs) that's awesome yeah they're i mean they're out there we're out there everywhere so man if you come up you let me know (laughs) i'd love to do the race again i don't know if i'll go solo i've been looking at pack canoes a lot those really got me interested yeah that that would be that would be awesome yeah i'll put you in charge of starting fires at night (laughs) (laughs) That I can do. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you handle that part. <laughs> that I can do. When you're out there in the jungles, is there ever a time you're like, this is something I'm not looking forward to doing, like a part of the training you're just a little bit regretting having to do? Not really. The worst part of, of the jungle class is, is just being in the jungle as far as you know the environment goes. It's just, you know, as the days go by, energy level starts to, to drop just the, the constant heat constant humidity you know the first time i was going to go down there i was talking to jeff and my the owners you know they've been going since the late 90s and i asked him i said y'all use any kind of insect repellent or anything like that and jeff told me he said when they first started going down there you know they tried everything under the sun just to keep the mosquitoes away and nothing seemed to work and so they just gave up on it and, and just don't use anything. And so I said, okay. And so my first, yeah, you know, I've never used any type of insect repellent down there. It's basically, you just get it in your head that I'm going to be down here for a set number of days. I'm going to get bug bit. It's going to happen. You know, I can't avoid it. It's going to be hot. It's going to rain. It's going to be miserable. And you just accept it and you deal with it. One of the things that we stress in a lot of our classes is, you know, a good friend of mine, Hugh Coffey, that wrote the book Ditch Medicine. He's helped me with a lot of classes. He teaches would teach a lot of our wilderness first aid type classes. A term he likes to use is embrace the suck. Basically, you know that it's going to be bad, but you know you can handle it, and you just you just deal with it. And so we like to stress to the students that a um, keeping a positive mental attitude and a sense of humor. You know, laugh about how miserable it is. You know, my first trip down there, we were going through a swamp. And are you familiar with the uh, the bullet ant that the Azula is named after? I am. Big black ant uh, on the pain index scale. It's supposed to be the worst bite thing of any insect out there. So we're going through this swamp. First trip down there in the jungle. And all of a sudden, I feel like I got shot in the back of the leg with a twenty-two right in the back of the thigh. You know, it's what it felt like. And so I uh, instinctively just brushed it away, you know, grabbed my leg 
and uh, I mean, just a terrible, terrible pain. And we look, Ruben and I look, we see this inch long black ant on top of the surface of the water, you know, like he's swimming, you know, <laughs> and he's going towards Ruben and we're laughing and he winds up getting Ruben too and stinging him. And oh, we, you got to laugh, you know, laugh about, you know, he, he was laughing at me, you know, getting tagged. And, and then when it got him, I was laughing at him. That sense of humor will, will carry you a long way. Just laugh it off. <laughs> just laugh it off. It's, you know, just laugh about how miserable you are. You know, just a lot of jokes as the trip goes on. It helps keep your spirits up. Patrick, if people are, say, interested in taking any of these courses, how would they go about doing that? Go to randallsadventure.com. You see all the different classes. You know, we're working on a new website. The one we we're currently using can be a little confusing uh, finding a certain class, but it shows all the classes. It shows when they're offered. I believe it has the, the buy now button, but it also has pictures of from previous classes. So kind of give you an idea of, of what to expect, the kind of stuff you'll be doing. You know, of course, there's a class description, what to bring, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if anybody has any questions, you know, about, you know, any of them, they can just email me, Patrick at jungle and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions they might have. Well, there you go, folks. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me for the Adventurous Gentleman podcast. Live your life with vigor.